Hello, and welcome to the American Theatre Wing's Downstage Center. I'm Eric Jensen, and I'm here today with my wife, Jessica Blank. We're the authors of the play The Exonerated, which was directed by the amazing Bob Balaban and is currently celebrating its 10th anniversary at the Culture Project. The Exonerated, if you don't know already, is a dramatization of the real-life stories of six people sentenced to death for crimes they didn't commit who were later freed when overwhelming evidence of their innocence was discovered. So here we are uh, at the behest of the American Theater Wing, and we're thrilled to be here. Indeed. So what do you have to say uh, about uh, our, uh, the 10th anniversary of The Exonerated? Well, it's amazing to see the play revived. It's amazing that it's been 10 years, I have to say. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but it's it's kind of incredible because I think when we first started working on the play, there was this perception that we were in a moment where the issue of wrongful conviction and the death penalty was in the zeitgeist for, you know, that we had like five minutes, right? I wondered how long it was going to be before you used the word zeitgeist, but go ahead and continue. (laughs) You know me too well. (laughs) When we got the idea for the play, we were at a conference on the death penalty uh, at Northwestern, or not at Northwestern University, at Columbia University. And we had been, we were listening to... Uh, well, wait a second, yeah. let me back up a little bit, because this was early on in the relationship when when uh, it was a date. You asked me on a date. Yes, I asked you on a date to a death penalty conference at Columbia Law School. I was interested, I was a political person, I was interested in the criminal justice system. And I was, I was interested going in Jessica. already, <laughs> you know, I thought maybe we could go together. Um, so we were, we were at a workshop uh, at the conference on a group of cases called the Death Row 10, which were all guys in Chicago who had had their confessions tortured out of them by a particular police commander who was found to have done that and fired. But these guys, some of whom had no other evidence against them, were still sitting in prison. And we heard a lecture on the case and saw some documentary footage and it was all very disturbing but on an intellectual level and then the organizers had set up a phone call though from one of the guys in prison and they set the cell phone up to a speaker so that for a few minutes he was talking to us in the room and by the end of that phone call we were crying everyone in the room was crying but I remember you looked around the room and you were like this is a really intense experience but it's preaching to the choir here we are at a death penalty conference right everybody here is a defense attorney an activist a lawyer a clergy etc and we started talking about how do we get these stories out to people who wouldn't think they would be interested in the stories in this kind of emotionally immediate way. And both being actors, we thought of theater. And I remember back then, it was this moment where Columbia had just published this big study on wrongful conviction and the death penalty that was groundbreaking about showing the risks of wrongful conviction in capital cases. George W. Bush was running for president for the first time with more executions under his watch than any state in the United States since the reinstatement of the death penalty in the early 70s. And actually in Illinois, there had been a gathering of people who were survivors of the death penalty that I had actually independently from even before I met you had clipped out as an interesting article and put in my filing cabinet. That's right. I remember that. And we so there was this moment where oh, and of course, Governor George Ryan in Illinois had who was a Republican pro death penalty had declared a moratorium on executions in Illinois because of the high risk of wrongful conviction in that state. So there was this moment where there was this convergence and everybody was talking about wrongful conviction and the death penalty seemingly to the, for the first time. And we got this idea. We brought it to Alan at the Culture Project. And I remember we all felt he said, here's a thousand dollars for travel. Go rent a car, find these people, go talk to them. 
you you can have my theater for free for three nights this fall if you have something up in time for the election, which was, what, six months, right? And he was like, go. Like, we all had the sense that we had to do this right now because this was the moment where people would care. Right. And it's been a really incredible thing. It's First of all, it's been an honor to be part of the larger cultural conversation that has extended far beyond those six months and continue to go on. And it's an amazing thing now that it's 10 years in to look at what the cultural conversation is in the United States and the fact that now most people in this country know that wrongful conviction happens. Back, back then it was shocking. Right. And also, I mean, just there was a, the, a vote that, that got voted down in California to end the death penalty in California. But even the fact that that got to a vote is a, is a, is a huge thing. Yeah. And I think part of the reason why it came to a vote is because of the increased public awareness of wrongful conviction. Mostly because need DNA evidence and things like that. Um, you know, as we sort of talk about this, uh, we've had a, a growing partnership and have collaborated a lot over the last 10 years. Why do you think that as theater artists, you know, that this, how is this different impactfully than, say, making a documentary movie and sitting in a theater and watching a documentary film? Like, what do you think? I know that we have different opinions on this a little bit, but. Well, I say, I say, I answer this question with huge respect for the world of documentary film. I think documentary films can be extraordinary in terms of, first of all, as an art form, and second of all, in terms of creating social change. Mm-hmm. Um, but documentary theater, I think, does something really special because there is no screen. There is nothing between the audience and the people who are on stage. It's this very, very viscerally immediate emotional experience. And I've seen it with Exonerated. I saw it with our second documentary play, Aftermath, based on interviews we did with Iraqi refugees in Jordan in 2008. The audience forgets at a certain point that these are actors on stage, Mm -hmm. and they start to feel like they're actually hearing from the real people because they know that these are the real people's words. You can you can literally hear them hear them breathe with with the actors slash characters on stage. Absolutely, and it's this incredibly emotional and very charged experience that I think, you know, with film, because there's a screen, there's always some level of emotional or intellectual distance, right? Mm -hmm. You know you're watching something that was made at a different moment, Mm -hmm. right? And you're watching a record of that. Well, it's almost the difference between having a dream and having a dialogue. That's right. And with theater, it feels like this is happening right now, right here in this room. And so the emotional impact of the stories is really, really powerful. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I mean, I think the other thing that I like about about uh, the play is, first of all, you know, is the ability that, uh, you know, very early on we decided we didn't want to sort of do the typical documentarian thing and 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 not help the people who are the subjects of our of our play right um so we've been able to provide uh uh you know especially with the revival for them over the last decade which has been uh, incredibly satisfying for us as as individuals um but yeah and i think you know i think that's like that goes to the point of because obviously with agony and the ecstasy of steve jobs etc there's been a lot of cultural conversation in the theater world in the last year about what is the difference between theater and journalism and particularly documentary theater and journalism even though agony and the ecstasy was not documentary theater Mm -hmm. it sort of presented itself that way sort of so it Mm -hmm. got into all of those issues and i think you know Documentary theater is not journalism, although you and I both agreed very early on that we would hew to extremely – not strict journalistic standards, but we're very strict with our own standards and right. our work in terms of recording and double-checking, fact-checking, all of that stuff. But 
you know, one one thing that differentiates documentary theater from journalism is that journalists can't have that financial relationship with their subjects. Right. And they can't really have ongoing, deep emotional relationships with their subjects. Mm-hmm. And I think when you're making documentary theater, there's a little more freedom and there's a little more wiggle room so that we have been able to contribute money to people, the people whose stories appear in our plays. We've been able to help them. We've been able to raise money for them. We've been able to know them and help provide resources for them to go on with their lives. Right. And I, and even though like our approach as authors is always to, is always to uh, make sure that we stay out of the way and our own opinions don't work their way into the piece. Our job is to be a conduit for the sort of thoughts, ideas, emotional states, uh, realities, uh, personal realities of the people that we're representing. Um, th- there is something, uh, there is uh, a kind of advocacy that that happens uh, with this kind of work that uh, places like the Innocence Project and Northwestern University have engaged in, which we also have an appreciation for. Absolutely. Um, I wouldn't describe it as a, a death penalty play I, I, or an anti-death penalty play. I would describe it as a play. Right. And people can walk away with whatever they want to walk away with because that's how it was designed. Right. Um, well, we've always said from the very beginning with this kind of work that what we're interested in doing is raising questions more than providing answers, right? So this isn't agitprop political theater that pounds you on the head and says, this is what you're supposed to believe about this thing. I mean, to me, as a theater maker and as an artist, that's boring. Right? Actually, that's something that Ayad Akhtar uh, said to me. I'm currently in uh, the play at Lincoln Center uh, with Asif Manvi called Disgraced. And that's something that the writer said to me, too. He's not in the business of providing answers. That's right. That's He's right. in the business of raising questions. That's right. And so, you know, we're we're not interested with exonerated about telling people what they should think about the death penalty. We're interested in it as artfully as possible and hopefully in a, with skilled craftspersonship preventing presenting these stories and letting people draw their own conclusions giving them kind of an open space to sort of break open some of the assumptions that people may have had about the criminal justice system and enter into kind of an unknown zone where what they have are questions to me i think you know that's the job of art and it's storytelling. Yeah. It, well, I mean, and, you know, we're sort of, even though it's a, a modern play and it's based on interviews that we conducted with, you know, people who were wrongfully convicted, um, it does kind of harken back to the sort of Greek way of, 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 have, of making theater and that, you know, it's a, a mirror and a hammer. You know, it's a, a, a mirror which reflects, you know, ourselves back at ourselves and also a, a, a hammer with which you can sort of build. Right. Well, it's, it's change. our riff on that. Brecht quote, right? That art, art is not a mirror held up to society, but a hammer with which to shape it. And yeah. I think really the best art actually is both. You see yourself as the hammer's coming at you. <laughs> yeah, okay. Yeah, sure. <laughs> so, um, I know that I'm, I know, I know the answer to this because we've been married happily for almost 11 years. 11 years? 11 years. Oh yeah. my goodness gracious. And we have a beautiful child now. Our, our best project. Yes. Our most successful project. Our most successful ongoing project. <laughs> Every totally. day is a revival. Um, <laughs> but uh, I, I, I'd like to know personally, just from a personal level, how the project changed you as a person, but also how it changed you as an artist. And that's not something that we really talk about very much. Yeah, it's interesting. We we ha- I don't know that we've ever actually had that conversation because – You're hearing it here for the first time, folks. <laughs> I mean, you know, for me personally, when we first started working on Exonerated, I had just graduated college and moved to New York to go to acting school. And I had always written – um, I was I, I was writing spoken word poetry when we met, but I had never um, and performing it. Yes, and performing it. But my my um, 
experience of myself as a storyteller was really in the world of acting, and I hadn't found a way to merge my relationship to language with my relationship to story, mm. actually. And so artistically speaking, this play, I mean, this play changed my life in so many different ways. But but as an artist, I feel like working with these stories and learning to and having the raw material from our interviews and such a visceral, specific, deep, intense experience of what the interviews themselves were like mm-hmm. and then being able to carve and shape those into the art form. It really taught me how to write a play and by extension, eventually, because I write other stuff now, both with you and on my own, um, a screenplay, mm-hmm. a television pilot, a novel, right? It taught mm-hmm. me story structure. Mm. Um, and I think I learned that in a very specific way by having that kind of raw material to work with with you and shape. So that was really important to me as a writer. Um, and, you know, Overall, I feel like really the experience of doing this play was like at one point I, we were on a date at a death penalty conference having this intense emotional experience and getting this intense idea that we were both very passionate about. And then two years later, I woke up and I was a writer in addition to an actor. I was married. <laughs> like I had had this incredible education about the criminal justice system in the United States. I mean, the process of doing the interviews, as I know you know, was an extraordinary process. We drove all over the country. We rented a car, threw our dog in the back of the car, slept in the car, rest stops. I mean, it was very grassroots, maybe is the right word. Um, And we went to places in the United States that we never would have had any reason to go to. I mean, I I don't think I ever would have gone to a a lower middle class to lower class poor black neighborhood in Florida ever. Oh, I mean, in northern Florida, right? right? Like we were I mean, we were four hours off the nearest interstate often. Right. And going to people's homes. And it was this incredible Incredible education about America, which is a huge place and made up of so many other places, right? This is actually one of the problems that I have with theater right now. Although a lot of writing has sort of gone regional in terms of like where plays are developed and stuff Mm -hmm. like that, I think we spend way too much time as theater artists writing about ourselves and our own class. Absolutely. And um, uh, and I, I think that one of the things that Jessica and I sort of try to do is to identify the other Mm-hmm. In society, and and one of our main uh, goals has always been to give voice to the voiceless, or to give voice to people that nobody cares to hear up from until we become a conduit for the voice. Right. Um, right. And and when I say that, I'm not saying that in sort of a cliche way. I really do mean we're a wire yeah. between between uh, people who have something to say but don't necessarily have an avenue to present it, which is sort of odd in the internet age. But you know, if you're talking about somebody who's living in a a shack in northern Florida with a floor that's like chewed through. Sure. Well, um, and also know. it goes back to what we were talking about before about the immediacy and emotional impact of theater, right? So there are stories that can get out on the internet, certainly, right? And be accessible, but they're, but being electronically accessible is one thing and being immediately emotionally accessible when you're in the same room breathing the same air is a different story. Do you want to know how this story changed me? Sure. Why don't you tell me about how the story changed you? <laughs> I think it changed me in the same way that it changed you. I don't think there's any need to go sort of like well, further into it. Well, then why'd you it. make me ask the question? Well, I don't know. I just thought it would be nice to... <laughs> I care about your feelings, too. Do you care about my feelings? I do. Really? Yes. Yeah, do you want to tell people about the fight we got on in the subway before we coming? We didn't get... I don't know, I know what I'm pretending. fight you're talking I'm about. I'm making up a play. 
right now on the spot. Who were you writing this play for, Eric? Uh, who was I writing the play for? Wow. Well, that's a that's a really good question. Um, I would like to say that I was writing the play for the public, but actually, uh, one of the things that uh, I, in my sort of more reactive years in my twenties, uh, one of the things that I was definitely in touch with was my anger. And um, you know, this is before years of therapy and uh, and and committing to Buddhism, but but. Uh, my reaction to what had happened to these people was one of deep uh, anger, of of shame, of fury at the people who who had uh, perpetuated the system to do this to these people. Um, many people who probably realized that they were innocent, but just didn't want to sacrifice their right. own careers and their own sort of like you know ladder climbing to to uh, do the right thing. And I really wrote this play to in in a lot of ways to bury that idea. Not them, because as a Buddhist, that that's that's up to them, uh, the 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 sort of antagonists in the piece, but um, to, uh, to 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 bury that idea, to bury that archetype was 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 who I was writing the play for, um, and not only just not only just them, you know, uh, as an idea, but also to bury that idea for the audience. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, um, I think that especially post nine eleven, there was this like real push to. You got to trust the government, and you know they're doing the right thing, and you know. Well, that uh, was. I mean, we let's start, expand their powers to yeah, investigate I mean, the people. First, and, the first reading of this play was in the first public readings were in the fall of two thousand, and they went extraordinarily well. And the Culture Project was on track to raising money for a commercial production, and then put it sep- up by two thousand one. Yeah, and then September eleventh happened. And I remember there was a period of a couple of months where, you know, the entire theater community, first of all, was wondering whether anybody would ever make any theater ever again, right? So there was that piece. But then there was also a very specific piece that was like, are people going to go see a play that is critical of the authorities? And the system. And the system, and that raises uncomfortable questions and puts us in that space of, oh, actually, we don't really know how things work all the time, and they're not necessarily always working the way they should, mm-hmm. right? And luckily, that that cultural moment, that sort of freezing, we must trust the system moment wore off, and Alan and the Culture Project had tremendous faith in the project. Bob did too, and Tim Robbins invited us out to his theater in L.A. to do a sort of tryout production of it out there in the meantime and kept sort of the juices flowing. But but I remember that as really like a scary moment that happened where we really were discouraged. Yeah. I, I, I mean, sort of, you know, in addition to sort of this like greater hope being lost, there was this much smaller hope of making the play in the corner. Um, and we were confronted with the idea that maybe well, – I mean, I, at the time it didn't seem absurd, but the idea that maybe we just couldn't make theater anymore because yeah. it seemed so small and unimportant yeah. in, in relation to what was happening in the world. That's right. That said, let me pivot into something. Um, uh, about what happened as a result of a reading of this that hap- that took place in Chicago, uh, a conversation that we were a part of. We did a command performance for uh, then Governor Ryan. Yeah, in sure. Chicago, I should probably Illinois. tell that story because you were shooting a movie <laughs> and couldn't be there. I know you were so heartbroken. They changed the dates on you. Yeah, but this really. Was, it was up. because this was really like a an incredibly a high point of both of our lives. We were on the phone together all night. Yes. Um, but. While the play was running off-Broadway at the Culture Project in its initial run, 
Governor Ryan of Illinois, who remember we said what around the time we got the idea for the play, he had just declared a moratorium on executions in Illinois. Um, and a moratorium means a pause. Yeah, he just he he said we're not we're not going to shut down death row, but we're not going to execute anybody until we can figure out what the root causes of all of these wrongful convictions that we're discovering are. And an independent and commission, an independent nonpartisan commission, came back with with eighty five things that or eighty some things that that the state of Illinois needed to do in order to ensure that there wouldn't be uh, as best as they could that there wouldn't be any. Yeah, wrongful they actually said they actually said that there was no way to ensure it completely, but here. Are 89 things that you can do that will hugely lower the chances of an innocent person being sent to death row. And then the next year and a half or so, it was total political gridlock where the state legislature passed. um, Actually, I think they ultimately wound up passing a law putting in place one of those recommendations. And it was a bill sponsored by then Illinois State Senator Barack Obama mandating videotaping of interrogations in any case that could become a capital case. But other than that, they hadn't put any of these improvements in place. And Governor Ryan was about to leave office. And he had uh, both of the candidates running to replace him had discussed lifting the moratorium if they were elected. So he was in this situation where he knew now so much that there about this problem and that the problem was actually enormous. But the executions were about to start back up and he couldn't do anything about it. So he started publicly considering blanket clemency for everyone on death row, which would mean in this case, not that they were freed from prison, but that their sentences were commuted to life in prison without parole. And one of the reasons that he did this is in a given year, I think I've got the numbers right, there were nine executions and ten exonerations yeah, that's from right. death row. That's right. So, so when he, uh, started to publicly consider this, there was a huge controversy in the state of Illinois. And he said, "Okay, let me really look at all points of view on this. He held hearings on all of the cases. He consulted with hundreds of experts from all places on the ideological spectrum, et cetera. And one of the things he did while he was considering considering this decision was request a performance of the play. And the play was running off Broadway at the Culture Project at the time, and so we brought it to Chicago With for Richard, one night. With Richard Dreyfus and Mike Farrell and, and the Danny rest Glover. Of the, and Danny Glover and, and the rest of the cast. And our from New York. And there was a performance that was done for 50 exonerated death row inmates, uh, members of the press, and the governor of Illinois and his wife. <laughs> yeah, and some members of the legislature and local politicians as well. It wasn't just spotlight on Governor Ryan, but it kind of was like that. He has very shockingly white hair, so you could see where he was in the audience, and I can definitely say that I was watching his face the whole time. And after it was over, he stayed for like two or three hours talking to the exonerees and actually mostly asking them questions. And he really, he didn't, you know, he was poker face that night. His wife wasn't. She was very moved. Yes, his wife was visibly moved. He was poker face, but he was really, really listening and was clearly very affected by the play. And he did wind up a couple of months later commuting the sentences of everyone on death row in the state of Illinois before leaving office. And he has said publicly that the play was a factor in his decision-making process. And we would never presume to take credit for that decision. He talked to so many people who know so much more than we do um, in the in that process. But it was such an honor to be able to be part of the conversation and such an exciting thing, I think, for us as theater artists who are interested in making work that has a social impact to see in a very, very clear-cut, obvious way 
actually, yes, art and storytelling in the right circumstances can make a concrete difference. I mean, that's 170 lives. And there's there's a there's a rule here that 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 I'd like to sort of like you know posit or throw out there for you know sort of younger theater artists who are kind of interested in doing this work. First of all, you just don't go out and do a bunch of interviews and throw them up on stage. This is rigorous. There were about 100 hours of interviews, but then there were, you know, dozens and 20s and tens and hundreds of hours of, 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 of editing that went into this. I think our 60-page play was constructed from about 250,000 pages of documents. If you include all the microfiche files yeah, and all, all the, the things that we went through. Yeah. Right? So, so there's, there's, that's a lot of material and, and, you know, going through and finding meaning in, in what is just information is, is, is phenomenally difficult. But I would say that, I would say that had we set out to write a play that would change the conversation. Never would have happened. It never would have happened and we would have written a, a shitty play. That's right. Uh, can I say shitty at American Theater Wing? Well, oh, come on. I mean, David Mamet so must say it. I'm getting out. a thumbs up. <laughs> 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 All right. So shitty, shitty, shitty. Um, <laughs> but, 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 you know, you, 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 the goal when you start something like this is the goal with any play. I want to set out and I want to tell a good story. That's right. And I want there to be tension. I want there to be revelation. I want there to be uh, epiphany. I want to find the best and most effective way to tell the story, not to make people have the same opinion as me. That's right. And that's, that's all we were thinking about when we were when we were writing it. We really like all of our attention was focused on making the best play that we could make and everything that happened afterwards was actually kind of a surprise to both of us. Yeah. And I think and it was also there were a number of of attacks from a lot of right-wing people including some prosecutors who have real power. Well, especially um, when the play was made into a film, that's when yeah. they really pulled out the big guns. So, um so let me ask a more sort of like, you know, ego-oriented question, writing versus acting, which do you prefer? And I know, I know what your answer is, so there is no preferential sort of thing uh, happening there. But like, you know, you've been, you were on uh, uh, the TV show uh, Made in Jersey this year. Uh, yes, you guys, Saturday nights on CBS, right. starting on the twenty fourth. Yeah, and of and, November, and that's something that you weren't involved writing. That's uh, right. They developed the character for you. You mm-hmm. came in to be sort of a conduit for somebody else's words. So, what's the difference for you, and what kind of pleasure do you find in each thing? So, for me, there's not a preference between one and the other. They're they're really different animals and. And they're very complementary. They're sort of opposites in a certain way. And I need to write in order to balance myself as an actor and I need to act in order to balance myself as a writer. So it's the, you know, this sort of pick one question is always hard for me to answer. But, you know, I get different, th- you know, Bob said this actually. Bob Balaban, our director, is also an actor and a producer. And he said when he gets an acting job, it's like he's going on vacation. <laughs> Which is really true. I have that feeling, too. When you're used to writing and creating things from the ground up and doing all of the legwork to make something out of nothing, Mm -hmm. to get to just participate interpretively in somebody else's project is – it is. It's very relaxing. It's like you really get to just go play. Ed Akhtar, who wrote the play that I'm doing, is also an actor, and he he more or less said the same thing to me. Yeah. It's a good thing that I met you before he did it. You might have married him. I'm happy to be married to you, honey. <laughs> How about you? Do you have a favorite? Uh, it depends on which one is going well. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good answer. That goes for me too. Right now, right now, I'm in a hit play. So, uh, so you're at, a happy at, actor at LCT3. So I'm a very happy actor. But you know, it's an opportunity for me to get over whatever problem the play is presenting. Mm-hmm. It's an opportunity as an actor. I consider myself an assistant storyteller. Right? Mm-hmm. I'm not in charge of the story. I'm an assistant to the person mm-hmm. who's in charge of the story. And sometimes it's really nice to be in charge, and other times it's way too much responsibility. Right. And I just want to go in and and uh, do my part. Yeah. 
and be of service that way. Yeah. Also, I think Jessica and I have, and I can say this, you know, fairly freely. I've worked with a lot of people over the years. Some people who have been ridiculously abusive in the rehearsal room, and others who have been uh, incredibly generous. Some people who have been way too passive in the rehearsal room. And I'll say that our real philosophy, our practiced philosophy, not a mouthed one, that we're all in this together, extends not only sort of artistically in the work that we do, but uh, also into the rehearsal room when we're working with actors. We're very actor-centric. We have a lot of respect for actors, their ideas, their opinions. You know, there's always a time when the hammer's got to come down. And sure, we're, like, of course, saying, okay, especially we're decision like makers. on a set where time is money – Et cetera, et cetera. But, but yeah, on any set we're on, any rehearsal room we're in, I think we really do have something that we try to put into action and have been doing from the very beginning, which is that life is too short to be doing complicated things with other people that make the process not fun. And also that the best work comes out of environments in which all the collaborators are happy. Yeah, and a, in a mutual respect. That doesn't mean that they're not, there's not going to be tension. That tension can be good for, uh, for, oh, for the drama sure, as well. Oh, sure, but within a safe container. And I think I just – you mentioned – you referenced it, so I want to talk about you are currently in Disgraced at LCT3 by Ayad Akhtar. It runs at Lincoln Center 3 until December 23rd. It, I've seen it a few times. It's a fantastic play. And we are currently – at work on a web series called Good Medicine. The Kickstarter goes up tomorrow. You will be able to look at it online. Go to kickstarter.com and search Good Medicine that Eric is directing and co-writing. I am co-producing and co-writing and also will be in it. And also The Exonerated runs through December 2nd at The Culture Project. You can go to www.cultureproject.org to find out uh, how to get some tickets. We'd love to have you. And we'd like to thank the American Theatre Wing and the Culture Project for having us do this today. Thank you very much. Thank you. Hello, I'm Heather Hitchens, Executive Director of the American Theatre Wing. I hope you enjoyed today's edition of Downstage Center. Downstage Center is recorded in the CUNY TV radio studio at the City University of New York's Graduate School of Journalism in Manhattan. Our engineer for today's show is Chad Bernhardt. Along with this program, all of the educational and media work of the American Theatre Wing is available online, on demand, for free at americantheaterwing.org. If you're a regular listener to or viewer of Wing programs, we hope you'll consider giving us financial support to sustain our work. Just visit our website, americantheaterwing.org, and click Support ATW. For Downstage Center and the American Theatre Wing, thanks for your support and thanks for listening.